0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Marit Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy.
1: Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we do our best to bring you into the world of rules-based investing by sharing... Our knowledge and hard learned lessons over the last few decades hoping that you can avoid making some of the mistakes uh, that we did so jerry it's just you and me today so good morning how are you doing
2: i'm doing great good morning to you hope you've enjoyed your stay in uh, florida
1: yes it's funny we're both it's it's early morning saturday we're both stuck in a hotel somewhere in the states so uh, yeah doing our best to uh, to get this uh, out to, uh, to you, the listener. And by the way, if it is your, your first time tuning into our conversation, we hope um, that you will enjoy an hour of, um, you know, hopefully some uh, uh, informative, but also uh, maybe entertaining uh, content. At least we'll do our best to, uh, to deliver just that. Of course, we're getting close to, um, to Christmas, the holidays. Um, but when I was looking at the markets this week, it certainly seems to me like Christmas may have come early in the financial markets. I mean, we had a week where both, uh, quote-unquote, a trade deal was signed between the US and China, or at least phase one, I think they call it, um, and we had a clear election result in the UK, uh, So, um, and then, of course, we have you know massive amounts of liquidity still being pumped into the system, uh, despite some really strong... Uh, U.S. unemployment figures from last week, um. So of course markets reacted, um. As as you would expect. Uh, now, of course, what's interesting is is at the same time as as the Chinese were uh, signing this agreement with Trump, I noticed the uh, in the news that China has uh, or Beijing has ordered all government offices and public, uh, bodies to remove foreign computer com- e- equipment and software uh, within the next three years. So, so I'm not sure what open markets really mean when it comes to that i'm sure it's not surprising to uh, people listening to us today that uh, stocks dominated uh really the the week in terms of returns although i would say it's interesting when i look at the kind of 40 50 markets that uh, that i always kind of keep an eye on every week i mean most markets were up this week there are very few markets that went down and of course the vix was the probably you know the, the biggest drop this week but most markets went up pretty strong um moves in some of the commodities, um, from a performance point of view, on our side at least, uh, stocks were dominating, so that's where we made the money for the week, it was a, a decent week. But interestingly enough, although equities did really well, the biggest winners for us were the Mexican peso and soybean um, oil. So um, yeah, uh, bonds, of course, um, in light of what happened, Risk on means usually bonds sell off, which they did, and on our side, it was really the mostly the uh, Australian fixed income markets that did a little bit of damage, uh, as well as the UK gills, but uh, not enough to spoil uh, a really good week, um, and um, yeah, getting back to kind of flat line for the month, and, um, and still a pretty good year for trend followers in general, so... With that in mind, Jerry, um, always interested to hear how your week uh, went, and since there was so much activity in the equity markets, maybe you also had some more activity in the uh, in in your side of the portfolio that obviously trades single stocks.
2: Ah, uh, well, uh, not not too much going on there actually, uh, but I agree with you on some of those market moves. It's uh, sort of interesting to see uh, now. It looks like. Uh, For us and Brexit is a positive thing and the pound rallied and uh, all is well. So it's kind of a surprise and I think we, um, in our point of view, had a trend change in the pound. So interesting to see what's going to happen to those markets. And, uh, you know, I was looking back over that British pound chart and the big crash. And then, uh, you know, fast forward a few years, the big rally. So um, just following the trends and we'll see what happens there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, actually, because when people start talking about Brexit, of course, a lot of the UK markets came under a lot of pressure, including the pound. Now, we it looks like we are getting uh, Brexit, and now that's, as you say, it's a, it's a positive, which is uh, obviously uh, quite interesting. But actually, I also, and I don't want to jump into the Twitter uh, just uh, yet, uh, but but I did notice one of your last tweets from... Maybe this morning, maybe from last night, where now the Europeans, the politicians uh, who have been, um, you know, obviously um, uh, putting up a, a hard line towards the British, uh, now they seem to be talking about um, how, uh, you know, UK can be the Singapore of the Thames and. Uh, and uh, you know how they um, want to have the best possible relationships and the widest possible, uh, you know, um, ways of dealing with them. Um, but so, so it seems like Boris's win has uh, changed a few minds, not just in the markets but also in Brussels. Uh, I would say, so um, fascinating to uh, to see how things uh, how things change and how the narrative uh, change. Um, so, but of course. We need to dive down in some of the other Twitter activity um, this week. And um, so, yeah, interested to hear what, you, what you've what you got for us. Well, we sort of talked about, uh, before we got on,
2: um, this one tweet that we, or one article we both kind of like from uh, Cambridge Associates. I'm not sure where I found this. Moritz, maybe, but I'm not sure. Um, and I pulled out some selective quotes here. I think overall a positive article, but a little kind of, I don't know, silly, or maybe we, we were having a hard time thinking it was consistent or interesting, but uh, the quote is, uh, while we believe CTA trend following can once again deliver appealing, uncorrelated, and attractive returns, it's likely that those returns will be unreliable, undependable, and lumpy. <laughs> uh, undependable, unreliable, disappointing, lumpy, frustrating, painful, non-correlated, but historically attractive returns are a long-time feature of trend following. All of those words were in the article, and so I, I know it sounds a little silly, but uh, maybe sometimes we feel like uh, attractive returns, uncorrelated, non-correlated returns, are not good enough. It needs to sort of be nice and smooth, but I feel like that um, the best part about that quote is that uh, it's sort of a feature of trend following. It's the way life is, and you take the good with the bad, and in the end, hopefully, it'll be positive?
1: It's a feature of trend following. It's a feature of life, uh, I would say. I mean, nothing goes in a smooth line. Why why would trend following be any different? But uh, of course, I know that people are deceived or attracted by... um, by some strategies that look incredible, smooth, and, and 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 low risk. But I, I, going back to the article, and of course we we have uh, you know respect for 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 the people at Cambridge Associates and uh, they deal with a lot of institutional investors. The article has a heading uh, or headline called "With trend following funds down sharply this fall, should investors fish or cut bait?" And to me, it's funny that's even a question, right? Because when you go back in time and you can, they, people can look at your track record, they could look at our track record, and every single time there's been a decent drawdown in uh, trend, um, I would love to see the evidence um, that it wasn't a good idea to buy it. And that goes for most strategies, right? I mean, when things are on sale, so to speak, it's usually a, a better time to invest than jumping in at a new high, which, of course, might feel uh, emotionally um, better, um, but performance-wise, it's usually not uh, a great uh, thing to do. So, I mean, it comes back to um, also the question of timing, right? I mean, uh, as you say, this article in some ways could be said also to be a little bit silly in, in some ways because deep down what we believe is that you need to build robust portfolios by having a core allocation to trend following and we shouldn't spend too much time timing it. You know, the the whole idea that we need to be judged and measured all the time when we're having, you know, possibly 20, 30, 40 years of investment horizon when we really need the money, so to speak, to retire. I mean, who cares really what the score is after five years, after 10 years? I mean, what you want is, you wanna be winning at the time when you need the money. You know, with all investments, they're unpredictable and just because equities have had a great run for the last 10 years, uh, in my personal opinion, and we try and stay away from predicting anything but in my personal opinion it you know it doesn't set up the next decade that we're about to head into in a particularly good way when you've had such a strong run because history tells us that these things don't last the the, the only challenge is we don't really know how long to wait on until we see uh, a change in in the macro um, picture that that's just the way it, that's just the way it is and and that's why we want to build these portfolios that don't rely on A particular environment on a particular asset class etc etc so so i kind of i mean you know i i i commented on the article and said i think it makes some fair points but but still i think what it's missing is the patience i think we as investors we as people we've lost the virtue of patience everything has to always perform and be better and uh, I think if we take that attitude, especially with investing, where usually the less you do, the better you perform. You know, I think we we are losing a, a very important ingredient uh, in in setting ourselves up for success. That's uh, patience
2: and pain. I mean, in almost any area of life, almost any adult would would uh, acknowledge that um, to get good things, one has to be patient and go through a fair amount of uh, ups and downs and pain. It's, and uh, and yet, it uh, doesn't mean in some areas we won't try to avoid it and uh, write things like this. Um, we've talked so many times about one of the key ingredients of a uh, long-term track record is long periods of underperformance. And, you know, it's the whole—we've talked also about how there seems to be a bubble in private equity and a part of the— does, Reason so many people really like private equity is because they don't see the lumpiness. <laughs> there, the, the there's no mark to market. Uh, the pain is sort of hidden, and they kind of prefer that. The investor prefers it. Oh my gosh, you know it's one thing for like I wish I, we didn't have to show our daily, monthly performance. We'll just let you know in a year or two. Uh, but for for the client to be driving it, it's it's
1: pretty crazy actually. It's just fascinating, really, that I think deep down most people, they know this. I mean, if you sat them down and you talked to them, I mean, I, don't, I think it would be hard for them to uh, rationalize anything other than what we're trying to say. And by the way, I mean, I think a lot of people, and, you know, I've seen that in, in, in the comments from time to time where people say that we repeat ourselves um and, you know, every week. And we do, and, and we make no apology for doing that because it's so important. I mean, sometimes you can tell people what to do, but it doesn't mean they're going to do it. Um, and and, fr- and frankly, I mean, uh, co- some of the concepts we talk about have been around for a long time, but it and, and, and a lot of great people have talked about them for a long time, but still probably 95% uh, of people out there are not doing it. Um, so, so that's why we need to continue to quote unquote repeat the message. Um, even if it's simple, it's still um, difficult to get people to embrace it. Um, and I find it, I find it interesting that at this time in the cycle, after thirteen years or twelve or thirteen years of equity, um, equity markets going up. Um, there seems to be an increased level of uh, bullishness for equities. Uh, One thing I noticed, and this is really interesting, um, so I was called up by a very uh, good friend of mine um, uh, just yesterday, and uh, he was saying, you know, have you read the latest news in the Danish financial newspapers? And I said, no, I haven't, I'm traveling, I haven't. And the article was about how uh, one of the pension funds in Denmark, and and, and I'm sure it's going to come elsewhere, we're now coming out publicly saying, we need to shift from fixed income to equities because we're just simply losing money and we can't afford to stay in the fixed income market. So we're shifting a good part of our portfolio to equities. And and this uh, CIO was basically saying, you know, we only have a relatively small amount to do. I can't imagine the problem some of the really big pension funds are having. So it wouldn't surprise me if we get now a new wave of more liquidity heading into the equity markets, even after this long period of time. And so it's going to be a classic, or I think it could be a classic example where people get the most bullish, get the most exposure to equities right before something, uh, you know, changes. And and uh, so yeah, and and I'm sure people know that, but it just seems like we we can't help. <laughs> chasing uh things at the wrong time, um, which is also why I don't think you should chase trend following. I mean, you shouldn't get more excited about the strategy after a good year, uh, and you shouldn't get uh, depressed after a bad year. I mean, last year, at this time, the industry was down double digit. This year, um, in December, we're up double digit, uh, pretty much, uh, at least most of the leading trend followers and, and so on and so forth. So, having this unemotional approach and having this really consistent approach and long-term view is, is critical.
2: That's right. Um, I got a little distracted when you talked about Denmark because I read in the New York Times this morning. Have you seen this article? No, no. The world wants more Danish TV than Denmark can handle. The streaming boom has led to huge international demand from sh- for shows from this tiny country but there aren't enough professionals to produce them. So, there we yeah. you know, when I first started trading, I was told that if you know, it's it's perfectly fine to have a plan in place if uh, tr- trading doesn't su- work for me. And so for you too, you know, if I know you're being very successful now, but
1: there is a demand in another profession that. Yeah, clearly, clearly. You know, it's funny. Um, so I haven't lived in Denmark for 25 years by now, and um, but I do know that. That it's true i mean denmark has actually produced some tv series that suddenly t- is turning up on on english television and, and 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 in other countries so so yes i guess they have been uh, they found they found another little niche uh, where size doesn't matter you can produce uh, produce good content even if you're a small country and hopefully people listening to us feel that we can produce decent content even though we're just two people and two mics sitting in two hotels somewhere in the US exactly exactly <laughs> so
2: uh, the next paper we we saw um uh, we got Moritz found this one and um was pretty interesting and i think these are smart people too but um you know it just shows that if we we can i can selectively pull out quotes to to make things look silly or to criticize, but I'm not really criticizing this, and um, it's just an interesting observation actually. But the the quote goes like this, due to trend following's larger historical risk-adjusted performance, and its long-term decorrelation against uh, traditional assets, typical approaches in deciding optimal allocations may lead to unrealistically large allocations to trend following. There is a clear trade-off. Larger allocations to trend following bring more defensiveness to the final portfolio would come at a cost of higher tracking error, and then I just um, ask, you know, it's not lower returns or more risk, so why not just choose the better risk-adjusted performance? And how can the better risk-adjusted performer be an un- unrealistic large allocation? So obviously, it's because the traditional assets, stocks and bonds, they the investment world revolves around them, and they're the center of the universe. And uh, it's just presumptions that they are the core. Although we include uh, stocks in our portfolio, we include bonds, which just with a heavy dose of systematic trend following, that gives us some sort of uh, attempt at uh, protecting capital and getting into the right trades at the right time. So once again, I'll I'll stick with my uh, trend following plus nothing allocation and not care too much about what happens with uh, the buy and hold in the stock market.
1: Yeah, and and so I think the article that you're quoting from uh, is uh, something that takes, uh, the starting point is a 60-40 portfolio. And so, and that's another thing that kind of, um, you know, strikes me as being incredibly interesting and that is that, you know, people are afraid and with people I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the large investors, I guess. Um, they're afraid of standing out, they're afraid of being different, they're afraid of not tracking the benchmark, yet I would imagine that they should be uh, focusing on trying to to beat the benchmark, but you can't beat the benchmark unless you're willing to do something different. Um, And I don't mean to offend anyone when I say this, but being different doesn't mean a 1% allocation to trend following. That's just not enough. Unfortunately, the math doesn't work um you know and in in you know in, in in order to have success in investing um you need to you need to be brave enough to to stand out uh and and have the courage to not do like everyone else um you know and 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 i think that not not just in investing but frankly in in business in general um the people we can look back at who have been incredibly successful just think of amazon and and apple just take those two um they did. They didn't become successful from doing what everyone else was doing. That's for sure. Um, so um, why would it be any different? And I, I, I think it's a shame that there is so much focus about whether you're, you know, as you say, deviating from from the benchmark or tracking error. I mean, what does that even mean? Uh, if you're doing well, you should embrace tracking error. <laughs> you know, the more the, the but it sounds like they make it sound like it's a negative, right? Exactly.
2: I mean, it's irrespective of performance. (laughs) Or it's just this, uh, it's a given. What we've seen over the past 10 years, I mean, please ignore the 10 years before that, but what we've seen over the past 10 years, those returns are a given. That's a given. So almost by any measure, adding this silly alternatives, commodities and currencies, and the use of trend following is is to be suspect because it's going to deviate from our tried and true, guaranteed. I don't know, eight percent, nine percent, ten percent, whatever there, whatever starting date you use. Oh, but it does come with that nasty 50, 60 percent drawdown.
1: Yeah, and and I wonder whether we could even transfer this conversation um, to to the, to the sharp ratio, right? Where you know our strategies don't look great when you when you look at the sharp, but that's partly because a lot of the volatility we deliver comes to the upside, but we get penalized for that compared to other strategies that looks like they have this amazing shop and everyone is just, uh, you know, uh, focused uh, on that. And, and then suddenly they're down 50% and, and oops, you know, the shop didn't really mean lo- uh, a lot.
2: And that's back to that lumpy thing. That's why we mm. got to embrace the lumpy because by taking the small losses and being diversified and having shorts on, we, uh, we're playing fast and loose with these open profits and give it a more room and they're up and they're down and, you know, coffee's up 200 on Friday. Then it closes down 600. So the markets are all over the place. And, but you know what? It's a profit and we're going to let it run. And it's, we're going to allow the lumpiness because that's what it takes to stay in a trend for a year or two and make, uh, you know, the outlier moves. So this is not a negative. It's a, it's, it's the evidence of freedom that you have to do that. When you have your risk management house in order, by making sure those losses are small and your leverage is reasonable and your diversification is ever present, yeah you know, I'm just just thinking, I mean I don't know where to fit this into the conversation, but I was just thinking like bean oil and uh, some of these other markets that were looking at coffee, you know things like that, British pound and crazy markets that are um, people don't have a tendency to have a lot of. These things are breaking out and making new highs and maybe the start of something big and uh, you're just not gonna get that type of potential profit and diversification from something that's sort of stock-centric.
1: I mean, uh, that's a good point and I I would encourage everyone to um, go back, find a chart of soybeans and go back 30 years on soybeans and you'll find that on a reasonably regular um, level, Uh, soybean prices tend to drop about 50% every so often. But it also means that if it's dropped 50% in order to go back to a new high, it has to make 100%. These are trends and you can see them. They're so easy to spot. And why wouldn't you have something in your portfolio, something in your arsenal that can um, participate uh, in these things? Um, I think another thing, Jerry, is that you know, we focus a lot on outcome, right? I mean, we get measured every day, every month. We have to pu- publish our returns every year and, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of focus on outcome. But probably the truth of the matter is that the, the only way to be truly successful uh, in many things, um, but including in, in, um, you know, in, in asset management or portfolio management and in our case in trend following, I mean, you have to love the process. Um, because as you rightly say, I mean we're taking inherently volatile markets and so we accept the lumpiness and we accept the fact that it can feel at times as a bit of a roller coaster uh, ride. Um, so unless you enjoy the process, unless you enjoy the longs and the shorts and, and the diversification and, and all the good stuff, um, you know it will be uncomfortable. And I think, um, but, I, but I, I would just encourage uh, many more people to focus more on the process and falling in love with that. And as we talked about last week, I think it was the difference between liking something and loving something. I mean, you love despite. And so you know, love the process despite the fact that it will be lumpy and it's not going to be in a straight line. But if you end up in a place, if you can get yourself to in a to a place like you, like me and, and, and many of our peers, of course, where you truly love the process, um, it's going to feel so much better. And I think your outcome will then take care of itself and it's going to be a lot better.
2: Exactly. I think people get stuck in situations where they'd like to be able to focus on... Uh, things that they believe are more correct and more tr- true. Uh,
1: yes, and controllable. I mean, we we I think we we often believe that we can control things that in reality we can't, and uh, and so embracing you know knowing what we don't know, as Larry Hyde would say, uh, it's just so important. Uh, and I hope for the young generation. I mean, I hope we have lots of young listeners uh, every week and i just hope for for them that uh, that that's something they're going to take to heart because they can apply it in in everything they do and will be doing for the rest of their lives and and patience i mean even if you spend 5 years not necessarily end up doing what you will you know what you um, will end up doing for the rest of your life i mean it's okay i mean spend 5 years doing finding your passion finding what you truly believe in and then spend the next 50 years doing that i mean um you know we need we need to have the long perspective on so many things in life.
2: You know, the next article um, reminds me about our conversation about the British pound and uh, Brexit, and now it's great. You know, the UK is strong. Maybe it's too strong. <laughs> <laughs> the experts, they spin, and they spin back, and you can kind of get confused, and a good example of how we like to follow the price. So to a couple of years ago, we were short the pound. Oh, it's everything's going to hell. Now the pound's at new highs, it's maybe a trend reversal now, and now Brexit is only because Brexit is a sure thing. And a crazy person like Boris is now the prime minister, so uh so anyways, pay attention I guess my point is let's pay attention to price, and it's uh, usually a better guide than uh the fundamentals and the conventional wisdom. And the article from the New York Times this week uh entitled How a Strong Job Market Has Proved the Experts Wrong the American economy is capable of cranking at a higher level than conventional wisdom held as recently as a few years ago. The old view of its potential was an extremely costly mistake. Just what is possible just a few years ago is that there's a lot we don't know about, the, about what's possible and how strong the U.S. economy can get. And so smart people and experts and paying attention to the buzz. Sometimes it'll help you uh, cut short your profits.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, and 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 again, I mean, you can expand on that uh, meaning. I mean, even if something has had a certain pattern in the past, and 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 you know, if if you get to three and a half percent unemployment rate in the U.S. and and so on and so forth, this will, by definition, lead to inflation. Well, you know, we haven't really seen inflation for a very long time, and uh, so again, uh, like you said, I mean, price, uh, why not just keep. Uh, you know, an eye on that, and and that be your, your guide. And and will people? I mean, don't don't look at what they say. Just look at what they do. That's usually a better better guide than than that. Uh, so uh, yeah,
2: I have a very loyal uh, following of um, Twitter followers in there. Uh, and I tweet a lot. Of, I tweet different things. Ninety percent, you know, tw- uh, tr- markets and trading and trend. But um, like you said this morning, I tweeted some, I tweeted some other things and. Most of the time, uh, only the trading tweets are sort of paid attention to. But uh, my most favorite tweet this week was about football, American football. It was quite quite unusual. And uh, it talks about um, math taking over the NFL and models and systematic decisions taking over the NFL. And this one team in particular, quote, the model evaluates the process, not the result. It isn't swayed by emotion. It will indicate which choice, on average, will produce the most wins. Even in situations where the regret is very high, the model is often right by a lot. Yeah, so that's this model systems approach, back testing, seeing what works in the past, uh, making conservative assumptions about um, the system and a model that you can, in rules that you can use going forward. Is uh, applicable in uh, lots of different fields, and um, that's a pretty good description of the way our models work, I guess.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, you know, math and stats uh, in sports became um, public—you know—became publicly known uh, when Michael Lewis wrote the book *Moneyball*. Of course, uh, with baseball and and the movie that that came uh, later, and it is a great example, you know, and it's a little bit. Very similar to I think what we do, right? So we use the stats, like they were picking players based on certain things that they needed to be good at, and they mix them together, and and they got a strong team, and and we do the same. Our model, you know, our models and time frames and so on and so forth, markets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are good at different things, but when you put it together, it's 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 a stronger uh, unit. Whatever analogies we we can find to try and illustrate. The strength in in what we do and the core concepts that we apply I think is super useful and everybody loves sports. I know certainly in our office at the moment, I don't know if you do that uh, at Chesapeake, but there's a lot of fantasy football going on right now. I think we're heading into the last uh, couple of weeks of uh, games, so there's not that many teams left. Most people have been knocked out, but uh, maybe next year I should uh, enter the competition as the only European and apply some, some math and some stats in my, uh, in my choices. I might have to call you to get some help.
2: Yes, that's a fantastic idea. Wouldn't it be so much fun for you to win that league? <laughs> yes. And I think, you would. You know, one thing that I would uh, comment on that is that uh, I'm in fantasy football, and I'm very into it, and fantasy hockey, and I finished, uh, the, I didn't make the playoffs, but um, I did have one of the higher total scores, points scored, but my points against me was the most as well. So I got, even though my team was great, I didn't have a defense for when I played other people, they had a tendency to have their best games. Uh, But in hockey, it's kind of funny because I feel like I have an edge in hockey because I don't know anything about hockey. Right. I don't know the players. Like I know I have my system and my spreadsheet for fantasy football, but then I do a little override I've seen these people play. The numbers aren't perfect, but I think the numbers are more perfect. And I'm doing better in fantasy hockey because I just follow the numbers. I have no clue what most of these players are doing outside of Tampa. Uh, So, you know, just like the markets, you know, it's sort of better to not know what a soybean is and not focus on these issues or uh, try to ignore them and just uh, follow your rules and – so I think you you could um, I try to take over some of my uh, systematic rules based investing ideas into the fantasy world. It's really fun.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe for the benefit of of maybe the younger uh, generation of of the listeners today, um, I mean, you and I have kind of a uh, a reference point to real life example because uh, one of our uh, friendly competitors back in the day, John W. Henry, uh, who uh, obviously were a uh, well-known CTA uh, trend follower, and um, back in the day, you know, left the industry. And you know, I'm I'm sure that there has been, and I don't know this for for certain, but but I have a feeling that. That uh, some of the things that uh, worked well for him in in his CTA business, that he applied that to the f- to the businesses he went on to to buy. One of course, um, you know, baseball, and they became uh, you know won the World Series. Um, but then also European uh, soccer, where he uh, his team last year uh, Liverpool became the best team in in all of Europe. I mean, this is probably not coincidental <laughs> that you take someone from an industry like ours. And he immerses himself in, in baseball, and then another sport that I'm sure he had very little experience with, uh, if anything, yet he ends up producing two of the best teams in the world. I mean, go figure.
2: And boy, I bet you there was such a struggle to bring that sort of world into the sports world where making decisions and choosing players has done different in such a different way historically that the it was probably a lot of uh, pretty difficult, probably hasn't stopped yet either, where more inroads will be made to where there will be more of a math game and less of uh, what we grew up with, I suppose, but, you know, such as life. Yeah.
1: But, you know, another thing, just because we're just the two of us today, so we have a little bit more speaking time, I guess. You, I, I've seen it in, in in another way as well, so so when I started the podcast, I had to learn a little bit more about um, you know social media and stuff like that. And when you look at the people who, for example, have become really popular and, and blown up on, on social media, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and of course, a lot of them do that through running ads of, of certain things, but I bet you when you look at these people, it's all about the math, right? They don't just run ads for the fun of it. I mean, they, they they look at the numbers, they they tweak, they twist, they cut the, the ones that are not working and they let the ones that are working run. That's not different from anything we do. So these core concepts, whether people like it or not, really are, uh, they're, they're a life concept, their skill sets that you can apply to so many things, whether it's sports, life, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Something actually that Larry Hyde talks about in his book as well, um, um, but I, I'm not sure people sometimes makes the connection that that's what a lot of these successful people are doing. Yet, as soon as we start talking about it as a strategy or trend following, suddenly it's uh, it's not as attractive as um, as yeah as you would think.
2: Yeah, reminds me of my uh, Twitter tweet that I pinned to my uh, to my page. That hasn't gotten a lot of love, but I thought it kind of funny. Um, this comes from an article in HedgeNordic.com, and uh, it was a roundtable discussion. And I think uh, some friends, CTA friends at Aspect were on the panel, and I tweeted a lot of the uh, a lot of the ideas from from that uh, long article. And one of them was um, a quote from uh, I think an institutional person. Investor who said we found that many of the diversified macro hedge fund strategies boil down to return streams that are captured in simple trend following strategy. The underlying types of strategies run by hedge funds are very common. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, and uh, we've often said that that uh, okay, if you don't, if you're in love with stocks, you know, um, maybe we can trade a few more stocks for you to where the stocks are more more 30, 40, 50% of the portfolio with a few commodities and currencies uh, rather than more diversification is what a typical CTA would offer. But still, that's a lot of crisis alpha when the trend following is wrapped around your the stocks and the bonds, your core, the things for some reason you're more fond of or want to get more of your performance from. That's where you, uh, systematic traders can add crisis alphas Protecting those profits, getting you in the right stocks, getting you out of the right at the right time uh, via, via a trend reversal or a small loss.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, of course, there are many strategies and there are many successful strategies that I would classify as not being trend following whatsoever. But when you look at what people, what most people do when they invest, right, they buy something for it to go up and sell it again. I mean, that is trend following they're looking for some kind of directional move. They just don't think about it as trend-following, right? Even a lot of the short-term strategies, they don't call themselves trend-followers, but in reality, they're trend-following, but just on a very short time frame. So, So whatever we call it, directional strategies or trend-following strategies, I mean, they certainly uh, play a big part of uh, many aspects of the types of investors that we come across, yet, as soon as you label it trend following, it just seems to attract some some level of negativity, as if it doesn't work well enough. Um, and um, and of course we have all this evidence, right? We we have all of this evidence of it working for decades. Not that many strategies have that level of evidence. So I'm just fascinating. I, I'm fascinated by. By um, how how we are being perceived relative to how I perceive it, <laughs> I think it, it's it's a fascinating uh, conversation, and um, and and I would love to ask more people what what rationale you know what rationale do they use what assumptions do they use when they look at these different types of investments. And also of course how they blend together the effect of trend that trend following has on a traditional portfolio. I mean, what kind of assumptions are you using to get to a conclusion that you shouldn't have trend following in your portfolio? I, I just would love to know. So if anyone has any opinion about it, tweet Jerry, tweet me, send us some kind of feedback because I'm I am really interested.
2: Especially if it's something other than, uh, we'll just look at the last ten years, and this is taught all of us that stocks are where it's at, and what's going to happen. You know, that's where we should have our money. And uh, but I think that's it in a nutshell: is that performance drives, and once again, don't pay attention to the ten-year performance prior to these past ten years because that was negative, and it's just uh, you know there's a tremendous pressure to be part of the group, and if the group fails a little, okay, that's fine, if the group is succeeding, that's great. And you know that tracking era is, is a real thing uh, to, to lots of people, and it's just situations and you've gotten themselves into where you, that's the game that they're playing, it's, it's more like politics. Uh, I thought of that article, I thought the first thing that came to my mind was this is politics, these guys are PhDs in math, but this is a political article because tracking era <laughs> it made no sense you
1: know right Oh, well, there's no i mean there's no doubt you're right in terms of uh, you know uh, the last 10 years and i think the last this this decade that we're finishing now you know will be will go down as the decade where diversification didn't work um and um when you do when you do have diversification in your Portfolio or certainly as a portfolio manager. I mean, you often probably have to apologize uh, uh, in the eyes of the investor because you know why didn't you just have more m- money allocated to what worked? But of course, nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know this, and uh, and um, and of course, you can just just look at people like Ray Dalio, whom I often refer to. I mean, he he would he would argue that that the biggest secret to his success was the fact that he used diversification between uncorrelated assets because he realized early on in his career that when you blend them together, it allows you to take more risk for the, uh, or, or to make more money for the same amount of risk or to, to, to uh, have lower risk associated with the money you make. And, and, and so that's, that's, that was the secret. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed just because equities have done really well the last 10 years. But that only works if you uh,
2: take all that diversification and wrap it in a trend following or a systematic strategy. Because long only, you're down to a couple of asset classes and maybe gold, maybe, and a little bit of gold. And if you just look back on history, bonds are positive and stocks are positive and gold. So the only way to get the true diversification um, with the currencies and the commodities is to have a systematic approach and there's no fall off in performance. When you add all of these crazy markets and the shorts, you don't make less money. You only get the diversification, but of course, that hasn't worked as well over the past 10 years as it did the previous 10. So, we're talking in a circle here, what's long-term, what's short-term, how long should we wait, all these subjects we've covered, Many, many times, and y'all uh, leads back to the same conclusion. We're not ready to change our mind about what is uh, the best way to go forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and I agree. And actually, I think that, actually, uh, I think that it's, become, it's become harder to find truly uncorrelated uh, return streams to equities, uh, frankly, um, at least on a long-term consistent basis. I was actually doing some analysis this week where I was just looking at our, our full track record since 1974, and uh, not only th- you know, does it beat the S&P, despite the S&P having done well, but it has a z- minus 0.05 correlation. I mean, who wouldn't want that? I know it's the same with your strategy. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Um, and it's almost like a lot of people chooses to just not accept the evidence for whatever reason. Um, I think people have gotten the message today, Jerry. I think we've been very clear about our opinion.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Another more kind of uh, trading trend-centric topic that was in that article that I kind of enjoyed and I recommend people read it was this concept of uh, diversification. I thought this was something that is, we've talked about uh, correlations, diversification a lot and uh, how to put together a portfolio. And I at least... uh, I think we've tried to be humble on this subject and talk about how hard it is. one of the co- uh, sentences I read, a couple sentences I read, I, I liked, uh, kind of looks at it in kind of a really good way. The person says, we are focusing a lot more on drawdown correlations and making sure that you don't just have artificially low correlations. We have low correlations in periods that matter. And that is really the heart of the problem uh, I have a diversified portfolio of equities, but they're going to all go down a lot on the same day, same week, When the, if the stocks crash. They have. They probably will. And maybe I'll be short some of them and long some of them and flat some of them. But, you know, the correlation numbers in the markets that we trade, they hide the fact that uh, we still have some sort of risk where they all can be highly correlated especially in this sector, it's just, it's just, I think it's an area that CTAs and people who are committed to a diversified systematic trading can do better because it seems like we have a lot more correlation sometimes than we end up having when it kind of matters. CTAs have had some bad months, and uh, this year, all in the bonds probably. Oh, my gosh, you know, but they're kind of diversified, and they look a little bit different until they don't. So I think it's 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 just a, it's an area of research and improvement. I think that we can all continue to strive for because it is such a difficult thing to uh, to, to to understand.
1: Yeah, no, I agree on that completely. It's also a very um, it's an area of interest for us uh, on our research side. I think correlation uh, is important, and and of course, I guess we we know that there are periods where um, where things correlate more than others, uh, of course we know when things get bad suddenly, correlations tend to change quite rapidly, and maybe it is maybe it is a little bit different um, today uh, than it was 20, 30 years ago, because a lot of the economies around the world have been completely synchronized and they you know, follow more or less the same rhythm, so um, that in itself uh, also drives, I think, higher correlation to some extent. We know the interest rate cycle seems to be completely correlated, in, in terms of the central bank action and, and, and so on and so forth. But this is also why, you know, having managers who uh, include all the commodities, who are not uh, sacrificing um, size uh, or sacrificing portfolio choices uh, for size, um, I think over time will be proven, be proven that it pays off. And most importantly, I mean, we make these choices because we deeply, deeply care for the end investor. You know, people say they do. Not everyone does. We know that. Um, so I think it's always important to look at the manager or how are they incentivized it, at the, you know, at the end of the day, what is the real motivation of the manager? And, it, of course, it should be to generate uh, returns uh, for the investors. Um, and so being, you know, cognizant about that and, and including um, the line of markets that uh, over time will you know provide good opportunities and and robust uh, portfolios is important even though right now it's so easy to to maybe also dismiss that because uh, frankly in the last few years commodities haven't done that well uh, for trend followers it's been the financials that has really um, you know done best but it doesn't mean that that's how it's going to be in the long term
2: no and that's our job is to take the short term pain of and not look at things in the short term
1: yeah
2: do you have more tweets uh, you want to dig into yeah let's finally uh get to the very uh interesting podcast matt faber andreas Cloneau of a few weeks ago and uh once again it'd be great to discuss this with andreas and get his point of view on some of these things um he talks positively and I encourage everyone to listen to Meb's, all of his podcasts. Um, there's a, a new one coming out that just came out that I'm l- looking forward to as well, a guy from NDR. But uh, Andreas starts by saying, um, the, give, talking about the positives of longs and shorts, which we've talked about over the past few weeks. But um, he describes trend following, Maybe this might have been the title, Uh, Trend following is about taking a lot of bets on a very few, large number of markets. But then he goes on to say "This so-called money management things, most of those things are gambling methods. They have no basis in mathematics, no basis in finance. I think he's sort of talking about risk and looking at risk as the risk uh, per loss. We're going to risk 50 basis points of our AUM per trade, 25 basis points per trade. So he kind of on one hand it's all about making these bets on these markets but then he he's not happy with i guess us not um, concentrating more on volatility and sharp and things like that so that'd be a good thing to talk to him about
1: yeah for those who um you know follow uh, and have read andreas klinos uh, books i mean in the, in particular i think the 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 f- i think it was the first one following the trend i really liked that book when i read it um because it's good at visualizing for people um what goes on inside of a trend following system and even though i'm and i've said this before i'm not necessarily a big fan in um making everyone believe that they can become a trend follower i don't don't think that's true i think it uh, it is very very difficult it's a difficult craft it's difficult to to do and so it's not for everyone and i don't say that to discourage people uh from from trying but I think, um, or I say it because I hope it allows people to understand that it's okay to try and fail. And then you adjust and you figure something else out. So, But anyways, Andreas um, is going to come on the show in early January. I think probably the second week of January. So if you do have questions, if you're familiar with his work, um, and you have questions for Andreas, then already now you can send it... Uh, send them to info at toptradersonplot.com. And if you could put in the subject line, a uh, question for Andreas, then um, it's easier for me to uh, to sort. And um, But of course, uh, questions uh, for us every week uh, are very welcome. Uh, and of course, same address, info at toptradersonplot.com. Jerry, we've got one question today um, that we can dig into. Yeah, let's do it. From Drew. Let's do it. All right. First of all, thanks, Drew, for sending it in and thanks for your kind comments. We appreciate that. Uh, Drew goes on, My question is about how to deal with entries as they create a breakout of the historic lookback period intraday, but then closes back below the breakout level. I know some of you only run your program on the close versus trading the exact breakout uh, moment intraday. I've seen at times a few days where we get an intraday high only to close below the breakout level. But the new intraday high creates a new breakout level and this can repeat for days meaning you eventual eventual entry of a close above the look back period can be almost an ATR away from the original look back breakout point. Have you tested these different issues and what are your thoughts? Perhaps your look back only looks at close or would you take the trade that creates the new intraday high while closing below the breakout level if you only trade at the close and then he goes on (laughs) then he goes on i know jerry wants to say just test both um you know so anyways um it's a good question drew i think that's you know for those uh, of you who are into the um, building the programs, building the systems. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, these things occur. You get you get a signal on the day, but frankly, you, I mean, the way I view it is you get stopped out on the same day. And 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 again, we don't use stops uh, at our shop, but uh, I have been involved with uh, lots of systems that do. And um, and it is a little bit of a point of a confusion, but the way I would think about it is, and and Jerry, you can correct me on this one, but I would think of it as if you get a breakout during the day, um, to buy, you know, say gold at fifteen hundred, and you have a stop at fourteen hundred and fifty, and later in the day, it goes below fourteen fifty, well then you just get stopped out, and that's the loss. If it then breaks out tomorrow again, and your, you know, your entry point happens to be exactly the same level. Yeah, I mean, that is the risk, I mean, that you you can have a number of, of, of false uh, breakouts um, in close succession. And if you do see that repeat uh, often, maybe you need to review the method somehow. But I don't think you can avoid having these situations uh, on occasion. Um, that's just my initial gut feel, uh, Jerry. What do you think?
2: Well, I... Uh Think what I think what he's saying here is some things I've run into before. And I think he has three different ideas. And I would just say to begin with, I think all three are created equal. They're about the same. So if I don't think you have to do the back test. If it closes above the highest high, that's fine. That's about the same thing as buying the breakout intraday. And they're about the same. And, and I think uh, initially I thought the question was going to revolve around that system buying the high, buying the breakout entry day, and then feeling bad about it closing below the close or that high or the, yes, the highest close. But that's, you know, of course, that's to be ignored and just follow your exit rules. But I think the third thing he's talking about is something that I've done as well, which is it has to close above the highest high, and then the highest, the highest high. The market keeps making a new highest high, but it doesn't close above it. <laughs> so you, so it's like one one ATR, two ATRs, three ATRs. You're not getting in right. the trade. Or even worse, whoa, you're not getting out. So I've I've uh just trust me, I've experienced this personally. So come up with uh a little technique to where you don't have to keep doing that. Um probably I would just choose one of the other buy at the highest if it closes above the highest close or buy the breakouts intraday of the highest prices. I think those are two great s- solutions. And focusing on where it closes from where you bought it without it being triggering an exit is something you should
1: not focus on. Cool. Great stuff. Well, I hope, Drew, that that was helpful and as I said, we certainly appreciate your uh, question. Jerry, what... Um do you have anything else you wanna i can i'll I'll run through the numbers as I normally do, but is there anything before we get to that that you want to pick up on something that kind of come to your mind as we've been talking the first fifty eight minutes today
2: mm-hmm. Not really, but if I think of something when you're done, I'll let you know
1: okay so these numbers are as of Thursday, so they include uh, some of the news that we saw with the trade deal and and brexit, the Beta fifty index is down 1.05% in December so far, up 596 uh, for the year. The, uh, the SOCGEN CT index down 1.04% up 582 for the year. The SockGen trend index down 1.43% up 826 for the year. The SockGen short-term traders index down 0.74% for the month, up 264 for the year and the bridge alternatives index, the flat fee funds uh, index down 2.07 for the month of December and up 7.33. Now, I had a little bit of uh, internet problems in our recording, so um, I'm going to wrap it up uh, now. Thanks so much for for joining us this week. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it and uh, if you want to help other people discover the show, please do uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes. We've had some nice ones in the last uh, few weeks and we really do appreciate uh, those of you who uh, take the time and do that. It shouldn't take long. So from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next edition of The Systematic Investor. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor
0: podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show.